You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read in just a moment, verses 18 through 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Does the sound like it's kind of echoing to you a little bit, the reverb? There's a little bit of reverb that seems like it's echoing a little bit. Are you cool, warm, hot? I'm always hot. You know, my best friend calls me a snake because normally I will freeze to death in 80 degree weather but there's something about the anticipation of worship and the anticipation of preaching it needs to be about 50 degrees in here for me to be comfortable so I constantly am freezing you folks out I'm burning up but if you're comfortable I guess that's what counts because uh, then you'll stay awake right now we don't don't want you to get too comfortable Ephesians chapter 5 verses 18 through 21 do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the reverence of Christ. This morning, I want to preach to you on the subject of the characteristics of the Spirit-filled life. For those of you that are not with us on a regular basis, on Sunday mornings, we are preaching through verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. We've been doing this now for about six months, and we're drawing uh, quickly to a close. We'll be getting into the sixth chapter uh, very soon. And it's been a challenging study for me. It's been an exciting study as we study the book of Ephesians, which talks about the wealth of the Christian or the riches of the, of the child of God. And this morning, we've come to this passage in chapter 5 that speaks about being filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit-filled life. This is probably the most important aspect of the life of the child of God. We are to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, the Christian life is a supernatural life. It's a supernatural life. And therefore, for the Christian to live this supernatural life, he must have supernatural power. So the Scripture says that God has given us the supernatural power of His Holy Spirit to live the supernatural Christian life. Now, the Holy Spirit dwells within, he resides within every single believer. Did you hear that? He dwells within, he resides within every believer. But not every believer lives his life on a continuing basis of being filled with the Spirit of God. But that is God's plan. That is God's purpose for you and me, not only to have the Spirit of God living within, but for us to live on a day-by-day basis in the benefits of the fullness of that Spirit that dwells within. Now, all of us are going to be filled with something. Everyone is going to be filled with something. It's a basic part of man's nature that in and of himself, he is incomplete. Therefore, he is constantly going to be reaching out for something to fill the voids that live within, the voids that are within. To put it very simply, he's either going to be filled with the spirits (laughs) or he's going to be filled with the spirit. 
And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 18, that seeking of fulfillment to be filled with something. And so Paul says in verse 18, do not be drunk with wine. Now, folks, when he says that, that's what he means. That's what he means. He says, do not be drunk. He means that. Because you see, when you get drunk, and I know none of you have never experienced this, so let me explain it to you, that when you get drunk, you come under the influence of alcohol. Your life, your, your mentality, your emotions, everything about you is brought under the influence of that outside source. The Christian life is not to be lived under the influence of anything but the Spirit of God. And so Paul can say very plainly, do not be brought under the influence of alcohol. Do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit of God. But what Paul says goes beyond that. Because you see, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, wine is used as a symbol of joy and of fulfillment. And so Paul, in a symbolic sense, is saying here uh, uh, that, that this wine that he speaks about is representative of all of those things that we might use to fulfill those inner longings that we have within. He's talking about all of the false ways, the imitation ways that you and I, as God's people, might seek in order to fill those voids that are dwelling within. Paul says, don't seek outside of yourself, but get your fulfillment, be filled up with the Spirit of God. Now, the word that he uses for be filled means to diffuse something. It means to permeate something. It means to allow the Spirit of God to influence and permeate every ounce of your, your being. You know, it's a tragedy when you look at Christian people who are always looking outside of themselves for some kind of fulfillment. Always looking outside for something to fill that void that, that, that is inside. When the giver of fulfillment, listen to that, the giver of fulfillment dwells within the believer already. There's no need to look outside, but we have the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink and he shall be filled. Did you hear that? If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink, and he shall be satisfied. He shall be filled. Now, when Jesus said that, he didn't qualify it, did he? He didn't qualify what that thirst might be. Whatever your thirst is, come and drink of the Spirit of God and be filled. Have your thirst quenched. If you have a, uh, a thirsting, a longing for possessions, then come to the Spirit of God. If you have a thirsting for power, come to the Spirit of God. If you have a thirsting for position, then come to the Spirit of God. If you have a thirsting for pleasure, be filled with the Spirit of God. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink and he will be filled. I want you to notice a couple other things before we get into examining these passages, uh, passages, these verses individually, that when Paul says be filled with the Spirit, it is in the present tense. Now, in the original language, the present tense is very significant because it means a continuous action. It means a continuing process of being filled. Paul is not saying just get filled with the Spirit once and have a hallelujah kind of experience, but he's saying live your life on a day-by-day -day basis of being continually filled with the Spirit of God. In other words... The Spirit-filled life is the normal Christian life. It's not abnormal to be filled with the Spirit, like we oftentimes think, but the Spirit-filled life is the normal Christian life. It is a, to be a day-by-day -day process of being filled with the Spirit. That is God's normal Christian life. It has become so abnormal for Christians to walk in the fullness of the Spirit that when we see someone who's living the normal Christian life, they look abnormal to us. But it is the normal walk of the Christian, he says, to be filled with the Spirit of God. It is 
possible. In other words, for every believer, every Christian. Now hear this. The fullness of the Spirit is not for just a select few. All right? The fullness of, of the Spirit is not some mystical experience that's reserved for those, those uh, particular mystics that have these weird and crazy experiences that are sometimes associated with the filling of the Spirit. Listen, it's God's normal for the Christian life. Every child of God who possesses the Spirit of God is commanded to be filled continually the normal Christian life on a day-by-day basis. Acts chapter 6, when they were looking for what we understand to be the first deacons to ever uh, be ordained, if you will, as servants in, in the New Testament, what did they say? They said, search for men who are full of the Holy Spirit. Search for those who are full of the Holy Spirit, not who have been filled, but those who are full now, those who are walking in the day-by-day filling of the Spirit of God. Now, how does that take place then? If that's for us, if it's a day-by-day experience, if it's a, the normal Christian life, how does that take place? Well, following verse 18, there are three verses that fall into a, a, a little section all to themselves. And in those three verses, each one of those verses begins with a participle. Now, oh, that's not important, but what that means is an I-N-G word, okay? And you know what I-N-G words, okay? In the original language, these are participles. Each one of these verses begins with one of those participles, and it falls very clearly into a three-point sermon. I don't have a poem, but I do have a three-point sermon based on these three verses of Scripture. falls very easily into that on each one of these participles. Each one of these participles gives a characteristic are a manifestation of the Spirit-filled life. Verse 19, he says, speaking. That's the first participle. Verse 20, giving. That's the second participle. Verse 21, submitting. That's the third participle. And in these three verses, Paul gives us the manifestations of the Spirit-filled life. How do you know if someone is Spirit-filled? Well, these three participles will tell you. Not only that, but it it gives us the the, uh, formula, if you will, for the maintenance of the continuing fullness of the Spirit in the Christian's life. So the manifestations as well as the maintenance of the full filling of the Spirit in the Christian's life. This is how it is manifested, how it's maintained. If any one of these three cease to be a part of the Christian's life, then the rivers of living water get dammed up. The Spirit of God who dwells within is quenched, and no longer is that sense of the fullness of the filling of the Spirit of God. A couple other things I want you to notice very quickly. These three things that Paul mentions, Ronnie, could I have just a little bit more volume? I'll back off of it a little bit, and uh, sometimes I get a little hoarse because I feel like I have to scream. I'll scream even if it's it's turned up. (laughs) All right, that's good. Thank you, Ronnie. These three participles, that give the manifestation of the Spirit-filled life are all three acts of the will. Now, that's important. They are acts of the will. They are something, they are things that you decide to do. Now, listen to this, Christian. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The Christian life is not a life that is to be lived by the emotions or by the feelings. Did you hear that? The Christian life is a life that is lived by the will. It is lived by how you decide to be obedient to the Lord Jesus it is, not, uh, it is not dependent upon your feelings. It is not dependent upon your emotions, but it is dependent upon obedience to the Word of God. And these are all things that you decide to do by an act of the will. Last thing to notice before we study them. They all three relate to relationships. You see, God is concerned with our relationships. One of them deals with our relationship 
to God. The second one deals with our relationship to circumstances. And the third one deals with our relationship to others. And if in any one of those three relationships there is a problem, then the fullness of the Spirit ceases to be in the Christian's life. Okay? Let's get into the Scripture then. First of all, the Spirit-filled life is characterized and is manifested by a joyful worship. Verse 19, Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. He mentions speaking and singing. In this verse, he talks about the believer's personal worship. That's a characteristic of the Spirit-filled life, an individual that has a, a close, personal worship relationship with the Lord. Again, let me remind you, this is an act of the will. Worship is not an act of the emotions. It is not an act of the feelings. It is an act of the will. Our joy, our rejoicing in worship is not at the mercy of emotions. As a matter of fact, the scripture commands us to rejoice. Doesn't say if you feel good, rejoice. Doesn't say if you feel like it, rejoice. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice evermore. He's talking about a decision of the will to rejoice, an activity of the will. You see, I don't always feel like worshiping. This may come as a surprise to you. I don't always feel like preaching. But I do not rely upon my feelings as to whether I preach or not. I make an act of the will. I make an act of decision that I'm going to preach. I don't always feel like rejoicing. I don't always feel like worshiping. My worship is not dependent upon my emotions or my feelings. It is dependent upon an act of my will, a decision that I am going to worship the Lord. So the characteristic of the Spirit-filled life is a joyful worship. Notice quickly in this verse a few things about this. Notice the method of worship that Paul gives. He says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then he mentions psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. I believe that when he mentions the psalms here, he's talking particularly about the psalms of David. The only hymn book that the New Testament church had in the first century were the psalms of David. That's the only hymn book that they had. And so I believe as David sang those hymns on the hillside keeping the sheep there, that the New Testament church took the Psalms of David and put those Psalms to, to, to music. And they sang the Psalms of David. He's talking about singing scripture. Can you imagine how it blesses the heart of God when his people sing his inspired word? Can you imagine how it must bless the heart of God when he hears his people gathered together as the body, lifting up scripture and song? We do some of that around here. We're going to do a whole bunch more of it when Monty McGee comes on full-time with us and is able to lead us and take charge of that. We're going to do a whole lot more of singing of the scripture. From very beginning to end, though, the Bible is, is replete with, with examples of God's servants lifting up their voices in song and worship to the Lord. And not only that, but commands to do so. Let me... Uh, I did the old cut and paste method of Bible study this week a little bit and just cut out some of the Psalms. I didn't cut it out of my Bible. I just ran copies and, and then cut it out. But let me read very quickly to you a couple of these instances in the Scripture. And you might just jot down the reference there where you are. Exodus chapter 15, just after the children of Israel had come out of the Red Sea, God had delivered them from the Red Sea. It says, then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Listen to that. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. That's Pharaoh and his boys. And the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They sang to the Lord. That's how they worshiped the Lord when he delivered them through the Red Sea. Psalm 40, verse 3. David says, and he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Psalm 59, verse 16 to 17. 
But as for me, I shall sing of thy strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of thy loving kindness in the morning, for thou hast been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known thy faithfulness with my mouth singing of God's faithfulness. Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. That's an imitation of David to the people of God. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Shouting Baptist in the Old Testament there. Verse 90, chapter 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all of the earth in worship and in praise. Psalm 103, verse 1, one of David's greatest psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why do we sing to the Lord? Why is our, the method of our worship with, our, with, with singing before the Lord? Because Scripture commands it and it blesses the heart of God when God's people sing. You know, as I was reading Psalm 103, something occurred to me. David, in that chapter, is telling his soul what to do. He's giving his soul a command. Your emotions are part of your soulish makeup. David is telling his soul what to do. He says, bless the Lord, soul. <laughs> he gives his soul a command. Now, most of us will bless the Lord or we'll worship the Lord if our soul feels like it. Our soul says, bless the Lord. And the mind says, well, if you say so. <laughs> and our soul tells our mind what to do. But David is doing exactly the opposite. His will, his mind is telling his soul what to do. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Many other Psalms that you can read and other passages in the scripture is the same thing, where the soul is commanded to respond. It is an act of the will. It is an act of the mind, whether I feel like worshiping or not. It is a commitment. That's the method of worship. Singing. Notice the means of worship. He says, in your heart, verse 19, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That word that is translated in your heart, I think the King James translates it that way. My New American Standard is more correct in that it translates it with the heart. It means literally by means of the heart. It means literally sing by means of your heart. The word melody there is a beautiful word. It means to strum an instrument. And so the picture is of your heart being a musical instrument and you strum the strings of this musical instrument of your heart in praise and in worship to the Lord. It always bothers me, and I've had people say this to me before. You would be surprised how blunt people can be. <laughs> I've had people say this, though, and it always surprises me when they say this, that I'm kind of bored with worship. Now, some of you said that. You know, I just kind of get bored with the, you know, the singing of the hymns and, and all that kind of stuff, and it just almost seems like a waste of time. You know, the songs are too fast or the songs are too slow. The songs are too contemporary. They're too traditional or, or you know, the... The choir's too large, the choir's too small, the piano's too loud, the piano's too soft, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And they put all that together and just say, you know, this all seems like a waste of time. Let's just, why don't we just get on to the scripture? Why don't we just get on to the preaching and the teaching of the word? And I appreciate the desire to, to study God's word. But it always bothers me when I hear somebody say that. Because, you see, the problem is not with the song. The problem is not with the method of worship. The problem is wrong with the instrument, the heart. The heart's out of tune. Paul says, singing and making melody with your heart. 
God is tone deaf, folks. He doesn't care what you sing. <laughs> he doesn't care how you sing it. What matters to him is if it comes from your heart, if the instrument that is, that is bringing forth the singing and the praise comes from the instrument of your heart. That's why when I look out across the congregation and see some of you not with your hymn books open, not singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, it grieves me. And if the Spirit of God is not flowing and the fullness is not there in your life, that may be the reason because you have not let go and understood and learned how to worship the Lord. As I said, worship ought to be joyful. We ought to have fun. I don't want to be flippant. I don't want to be irreverent. But I mean, we ought to enjoy worshiping and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. Dr. Clyde Fant for years was a professor of preaching at Southwestern Seminary and then went to the pastor to First Baptist Church in Richardson where my wife grew up and he was her pastor uh, all through high school and college, Dr. Fant told a story one time that just blessed me, and I want to repeat it to you. First Baptist Richardson has a ministry to retarded children, one of the few churches in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex that does that. That church has for years ministered to retarded children in the community, and periodically Dr. Fant will go out and, and will worship with the children before the morning worship service, and he'll lead them in song and sit down and teach a Bible story to them. And he said one time, I was out there with the, with the children, and we were singing. They loved to sing. They always loved to sing. And he said, we were singing some songs and singing some hymns, and we'd get finished with one, and, and somebody would say, let's sing another one. And so he said, we'd, we'd sing another one, and they'd get through with that song, and another kid would raise his hand and say, let's sing another one, and sing another one, sing another one, and just kept on and on and on. They'd sing all day, he said, if you'd let them do that. And he said, after, after one particularly exciting and one particularly rousing number they got to the end of the very last note, the very last word, and right at the end of the, of the, the note, one little boy jumped up and said, Hooray! <laughs> Dr. Fett said, that ought to be our attitude of worship. We ought to have an ole kind of attitude toward worship. There ought to be enthusiasm. There ought to be joy in the presence of Jesus. There ought to be excitement in lifting our voices, making melody with our hearts to the Lord. Some of you struggle with depression, you struggle with frustration, you struggle with anxiety, you, you struggle with worry and fear and all of these things. Let me make a very practical suggestion to you. Start singing. Start singing to the Lord. Take one of those hymn books that you've taken from church. <laughs> Take one of those hymn books when you get home today. Open it up. I said that because there's not any hymn books in this front row. I don't know where they are. Uh, there's not a one on the whole front row. Oh, there is. You got one, didn't you? Take a hymnal, hymnal, open up that hymnal and find a hymn. Memorize the words of that hymn. Memorize the tune. Learn one of these choruses that we sing together. Let's forget about ourselves and magnify the Lord. I have come to praise the Lord. Learn that and begin to sing it to the Lord during the day. Sing it in the shower. You'll drive your family nuts, but sing it. It'll bless God. Sing it in your car. People will think you're crazy, but it'll bless God. Sing it at home as you're doing the housework or in your office as you're in your office and you're not having to think too heavily on other things. Sing and make melody with your heart to the Lord. It blesses the heart of God. And I'll guarantee you that it'll do a great work of releasing the fullness and the power of the Spirit in your life. Third, notice the motive. The other two points, I promise, are a lot shorter than these, this one. The motive of our worship. Paul says in verse 19, singing and making melody with your heart. Where? To the Lord to the Lord. The motive of our worship is to the Lord. He is our mo motive. You see, the worst thing that could be said about our worship is not that it's out of tune, and sometimes that could be said, but that it's misdirected, that it's directed toward us, and it's not directed for, toward the Heavenly Father. 
The worst thing that could be said is that it would be mis misdirected in the wrong direction. You see, a lot of folks approach worship as a drama. Maybe you've heard this before. And in this drama, uh, me, is that correct? And John, John and I <laughs> are the prompters in worship, or we're the performers. We're up here on the stage, and we're performing in this drama that's going on, and you are the audience. And God is the prompter. He's back there in the wings, and he's prompting on the performers as they perform this drama. That's wrong. That's exactly opposite of what worship is all about. In real worship, we are the prompters, we who are leading you. You are the performers, you are the worshipers, and God is the audience. Did you hear that? The motive of our worship is the Father. It is to be pointed and directed toward the Lord. Sing and make melody with your heart to the Lord. We have the wrong approach, I'm afraid, many of us, to worship. We come in the back door, and I, folks, I can see it on some of your faces when you walk in this place. You say, here I am, preacher. Ain't this what you wanted? <laughs> now entertain me. Bless me. Inspire me today. And no wonder you go away disappointed every Sunday. Every single Sunday you go away disappointed because I didn't bless you the way you thought you ought to be blessed. I didn't inspire you the way you think you ought to be inspired. Listen, worship is to the Lord and you're the performer, not the audience. We worship to the Lord. We sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And if you get blessed in the process, it's of it's grace. It's a blessed after effect. But I promise you this, you come to the Lord with an attitude of worship, forgetting about yourself the way the song says and just singing to the Lord, it'll bless God's heart and he'll bless you in the process. But if you come into this place as an audience and not as a performer, if you come into this place to be blessed, to be inspired from what I might preach or what John might sing or the choir might do or somebody else might say to you, then you'll walk out disappointed every single time we make melody with our hearts to the Lord. So the characteristic of the spirit-filled life is a joyful worship. Notice quickly, it is characterized by continual thanksgiving. Verse 20, verse 20, Paul says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, there it is, to God, even the Father. Verse 20, he mentions giving thanks. The second correct characteristic is giving thanks thanks, an attitude, a lifestyle of thanksgiving to the Lord. Do you know that this is the most common command in the Bible, to give thanks? It is the most common command in the Scriptures to give thanks. Paul says, in everything, 1 Thessalonians, give thanks. And most of us ought to be humbly grateful. We're grumbly hateful, I heard it said. Well, because we don't have an attitude, we don't have an understanding of what it means to be thankful to the Lord. Again, this is an act of the will, folks. You don't just give thanks when you feel like giving thanks to God. He says you give thanks all of the time in every situation and it is not dependent upon your emotions. It is an act of the will to give thanks to the Father. This thanksgiving must be a correct thanksgiving. Where is it directed? Paul says it is to God. Your thanksgiving goes to God, not to circumstances, not to people, but to God. Everything in the Christian's life is to be directed toward the Father. Worship thanksgiving, praise, everything we do is directed to the Father. It must be a correct thanksgiving. Second of all, it must be a continual thanksgiving. He says, always giving thanks in verse 20. Did you hear that? Always giving thanks. That means all the time. That means whether you feel like it or whether you don't. That means whether your soul 
wants to give thanks or whether your soul doesn't. You make a decision, a commitment of the will to live a life of thanksgiving. It's continual. But third, it's complete. He says, for all things. It's to God. It's always and it is for all things. Gee, thanks, Paul. You know, the Spirit could have just left that out, couldn't he? He could have just left that part out. That's the part that makes it tough because it's easy to be thankful when it's good, but it's not so easy, and it takes a decision of the will when circumstances are not so rosy. What is giving thanks anyway? What is giving thanks? It is acknowledging a gift or a blessing. That's what it boils down to, isn't it? When someone gives you a gift, you say, thank you. I hope you do, at least. You ought to. If you don't, you better start. (laughs) When someone gives you a gift, you say thank you in acknowledgement of that gift. Why do we give thanks to the Father in every single circumstance? Listen to this. Oh, I I wish you could get this. This would set you free in your walk with the Lord. About three or four years ago, I came to an understanding of this biblical doctrine, and it has set me free in every area of my life. Why should we give thanks to God in every circumstance? Because when you give thanks to the Father, even when the circumstance is bad, you are recognizing the sovereignty of God. Did you hear that? You are in complete recognition of the sovereignty of a sovereign God. And that in that circumstance, whether it is good or whether it is bad, God has an opportunity to work. And you are in recognition of that. You are recognizing that what Romans 8.28 says is absolutely true. All things do work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. His sovereignty. You are making recognition of it. And when you don't, you are just saying, God, you are not in control. You are not sovereign. This circumstance is above you. This circumstance is beyond you. Now stop for just a moment. If the rivers of living water, if the fullness of the Spirit has been stopped up in your life, it may be right here at this point. Let me make a practical suggestion for you. I can't keep from being practical because I hated it in school. I still hate it when somebody tells me to do something and don't tell me how to do it. So let me make a practical suggestion for you here. If the rivers of living water seem to be stopped up in your life, it may be at this point. Do something this afternoon. Go home and this afternoon take a pen and a piece of paper and write down every bum deal you've ever gotten in your life. Just write down every bum deal you've ever gotten. If you got big ears and you think that big ears is a bum deal, then write down big ears. Another practical suggestion, just grow your hair over them. Covers them up. If you think you got a bum deal because of any area of your physical makeup, then write that down. If you think that your economy, your economic status is a bum deal, then write that down. If you think your family background is a bum deal, I mean, you look at everybody else and they had the happy families and you got ripped off and your family was just a joke, then write that family down. Don't tell your family, but just write it down. Every bum deal that you ever got in life, write it down that you can think of. And then write down everything that you would change if you could, but you know you can't something you're frustrated with, you wish you could change it, but you know you can't, then just write it down. And then do this. Go down the list one by one and thank God. Thank God for those big ears. Thank God for your economic status. Thank God for your family. Thank God for that thing in your life that you wish you could change, but you know you can't. Just thank him for it and submit to him and ask him what he wants to do in your life through it. Did you hear that? 
Now that's the manifestation of the fullness of the Spirit of God. One by one, mark them off and thank God. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you believe that God is the author of all disease and that God is the author of every car wreck that ever happens or every tragedy that ever takes place on the face of this earth. No, it doesn't mean that. It simply means that you believe that God is greater than every one of those and that God can work in and through and in the midst of every circumstance of life that he is sovereign. And so you thank him for what he's going to do in the midst of that situation. All right, very quickly, we're going to close. The third characteristic of the Spirit-filled life is mutual submission. Joyful worship, continual thanksgiving, and third, mutual submission. We just had to do this, folks. We, I mean, the verse is here, so we, we had to hit it. A couple of weeks ago, we dealt with verses 22 and following about the other submission. But this one is verse 21. is for all of us. Paul says, be subject to one another in the reverence of Christ. He mentions submitting one to another. This is mutual submission. Men, this may come as a surprise to you. Submission is not just for wives to husbands. <laughs> it's not. It's for all Christians. Submission is for all Christians. Submission does not mean weakness. It simply means voluntarily putting yourself under the authority of another for the glory of God. Submitting one to another in the reverence of Christ. It actually is a military word. It means one equal submitting to another equal. A corporal submits to a sergeant, not because the sergeant is better than him, but because military authority demands it. And so Paul says, submit one to another, not one that is less submitting to one that is greater, but one that is equal submitting to another equal. Mutual submission for the glory of God. That principle is seen in the life of Christ. Anybody that knows anything about Christian theology understands that Jesus is and was in all things totally co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, yet he voluntarily submitted to the authority of God while he was on earth. Not unequal, an equal submitting to an equal. It's seen in the life of the Apostle Paul. He was an apostle called anointed of God. He could have exercised authority over the churches, yet Paul said to the Corinthians, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ and ourselves, your servants. Did you hear that? The Apostle Paul as your servants. Any Christian that has an attitude of haughtiness, proudness, or rebellious spirit is not filled with the Spirit of God. Scripture says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, Anyone that is thirsty, let him come and let him drink. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Let me ask you a question. How much of the fullness of the Spirit are you experiencing today? I don't know how much you're experiencing, but I do know this. You have as much as you want. You have as much of the Spirit's fullness in your life as you desire. It's not an act of the, the emotions. We don't look for the feeling of the Spirit, but for the filling of the Spirit. It is an act of the will to make the decisions, learning to worship, singing, making melody to the Lord. That's humbling yourself before the Lord learning to be thankful to God, to recognize His sovereignty in every situation of life. Quit taking those situations out of God's hands. Put them there where they belong. Submit to Him. Continual thanksgiving. And third, learn to submit. Learn to submit. 
It's a spiritual principle. You'll never be over till you've learned to be under. You'll never be over till you've learned to be under. Submission is not just for wives to their husbands. Submission is for Christians, one to another. Imagine the church where God's people had such an understanding of the fullness of the Spirit that there was never a time when there was ever a jockeying for position. There was never a time when there was a sense of resentment, there was a sense of jealousy over someone's position of authority in the body of Christ and feeling that you deserve that, feeling that you would suit that much better, but just a willingness to submit to the authority for the reverence of Jesus, for the sake of the kingdom of God. A haughty and proud spirit, a rebellious spirit, never experiences the fullness of the Spirit of God. Stop asking God to fill you. You don't have to beg Him. He wants to. Just allow Him to. Submit to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We praise you for your word.